0: from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. We are studying through the Gospel of John. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, take them and turn to John chapter one. Just want to make sure you're paying attention. John chapter one. Many of you are familiar with with this opening sentence, it was a dark and stormy night, right? You, you've heard that, right? It may be the best known, if not the the most uh, mocked, opening line in all of history. Now, my 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 family can't participate in this, but I will give you a gold star. This morning, if any of you can tell me where that line that we all know originally came from, does anybody have any idea? Okay, I didn't either, all right? All right, so I did what we all do when we don't know something, right? We Google it. So I, I Googled it, and here is the answer. It comes from a novel written by a man whose name was Edward Bulwer-Lytton. He, he was English. And interestingly enough, for a period of time before the Civil War, he served as the secretary of state for the colonies in England. That means that, that has nothing to do with the rest of the story. I just found it interesting. But he wrote a book in 1830 by the name, and here's the name of the novel, Paul Clifford. It is 930 pages. I plan to read the first sentence only and, and, and be done with it. And that was the opening sentence to his book. It was a dark and stormy night. Now, it goes on for a little bit longer. And and that sentence has filtered down through history. He wrote that in 1830, but it has filtered down through history. And it's become such a tremendous cliche that there is an annual competition. An annual competition. And the competition is to write... The, the most, and I can't remember the first adjective, but to write a sentence to the worst novel never written, right? And you're supposed to just come up with this opening sentence that is just fantastically absurd. Now, here's what I find is really funny. They have a symbol for their competition. And it's a symbol you're all going to recognize, but I don't know if any of you would guess it this morning. The symbol, so when you go to that website to enter into the competition, on the website... Sitting down in the corner is a picture of Snoopy sitting on his doghouse. Because why? Carol's over here going, that's what I was going to say. And I I, I believe Carol. If Carol says that she knows it, I believe her. But the reason why is how many Snoopy comic strips did you see Snoopy sitting on his doghouse in front of a typewriter? And the only thing that you saw on that piece of paper were the words, it was a dark and stormy night. All right? It's so well known. Everybody knows it. When you come to John chapter 1, I would argue to you that the opening two verses of John chapter 1, and really the opening sentence, because verse 1 and verse 2, is, is they, they're two very short sentences. It's the most well known words that open any of the books. Of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Man, when you come to John, he does not start in the shallow pool, he does not start in the shallow end, which is really interesting, right? When you have a new believer, where do you send them? What is the most popular book to send a new believer to to say, hey, if you want to know more about God and more about Jesus, what book do you tell them to go read? You tell them, go read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is interesting in that it, it literally is shallow enough that you can wade in it. But as someone wrote deep enough that an elephant can swim. And John this morning, when he starts, he doesn't start us off in the shallow end. He starts us off in the deep end. And as he starts us off, he immediately places before us the eternality of Jesus Christ. Because as John writes and he expounds his gospel, what is the very, we we looked at this last week, many more signs were performed and I wrote this so that in seeing these signs and knowing what Jesus did, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord. And so to follow through John's logic, he starts right here at the deep end and saying, we need to understand That many of you, as he is writing, you have seen Jesus. You have seen his human form. You have seen his earthly body. And so you're going to think that he must have had a beginning when Mary, his mother, conceived him and he came into the world. And John is saying, no. Jesus' beginning is not at his birth. It's not at his incarnation that Jesus always has been. And so John, as, as we're looking at these verses, he wants his reader and he wants us to know, number one, that Jesus Christ eternally exists. He eternally exists. Now as we are reading that and we understand that, one of the first things that we have to do is we've got to look at the sixth word in his writing, in his sentence. In the beginning was the Word. Now, side note soapbox. There is a difference between Word, capital W, and Word, little w. Word, capital W, refers to Jesus. Okay? It refers to Him. But the question for us is, why? Why? Why does he say that? Why does he not say, in the beginning was Jesus? Why does he, why does he say, in the beginning was the Word? And it's since he uses that, and we believe that every word is inspired by God, and so God inspired John through the Holy Spirit to use the word, word, and please stick with me, I know it's going to get complicated saying word, word, every fourth or fifth word, you just can't speak without it. What are the implications That flow from that, because obviously, John is trying to convey a very specific idea. What idea is he trying to communicate? Well, let's think of the way that we use the word word, right? For for us, it's usually an indicator of something, right? I say, dog. You know what I'm talking about. Everybody here, some image, your dog, somebody else's dog, a little dog, big dog, something popped into your mind, but the image that popped into your mind was a dog. We also use it metaphorically. I'd like to have a word with you. And so when you walk up to me, I'm not going to look at you and say, dog. Right? That, that's usually the lead-in to something bad, right? Anybody ever had a conversation after, I'd like to have a word with you that was positive? All right, let's, let's just get away, with the, let's get away with the metaphorical, hey, I want to say something ugly about you. Can you come here and talk to me? That, that's really what it is. But John's readers are not viewing or would not understand the Word in that way. Because John's readers are going to have an Old Testament understanding and knowledge that maybe we don't today. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, and we spoke about this in Sunday school. Uh, every morning Sunday school plug. All right, need to be in Sunday school. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, Genesis 1, we know what? That God is a speaking God. That God speaks. When God looks in verse 3 and he says, Let there be light, it says, God said, Let there be light, and there was. And in that wording, let there be light, God's power issues forth and light comes in to existence. God's word has the power to create. But then as you follow through the Old Testament, you continue to follow through and you look, you will repeatedly say, see the phrase, the word of the Lord God issues his covenant with Abraham, you see it. When God gives the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, it's there. The prophets, thus says the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me and told me to say to you, thus says the Lord. So God then is speaking, and he is speaking authoritatively to his people. But then there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 55, verse 9 through 11. All right, You probably know verse 9. Verse 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Y'all have heard that verse many times. Verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Then he says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When you read those words, and you look at how this is laid out, and you read verse 11 of Isaiah 55, and you ask the question, how does a word go out and accomplish what you said? Right. Let's go back to my, my, my silly analogy. Right. And Barry was supposed to be here this morning so I could pick on Barry, but I'll pick on him anyway. All right? So if I looked at Barry and said, Barry, I'd like to have a word with you. And Barry comes up here and I look at him and I say, Barry, thus says the word of Gary, dog. Barry's going to have me locked up, first of all. But secondly, what is going to happen when I say that? It's not a trick question. Absolutely, positively, nothing is going to happen. It doesn't matter what word I use. Dog, cat, horse, car, don't matter. Nothing is going to happen. And the fact that nothing happens is critically important. Because what we understand is, I do not have the power to do that. To say a word that it goes out and performs what I call it to do. And at the same time, elevating it, not just from me, but to the next step up, what we realize is there is no faith system or belief that attaches the ability for the word of their leader or their sacred text to go out and empower and accomplish their will. You can't find it. It is just words. Words to live by, words to to kind of do, but not words or not a word that is going to accomplish their will. Isaiah 55 says, When God speaks... His will is completed. His will is made made known. So the Old Testament and, and, and Judaism, as the Jews are reading this, what they're going to see is that when John writes, in the beginning was the Word, they're going to understand that as it is attached to God, that God is active and He is personified and He is working and He has power and He has authority. And all of this is wrapped up into that. John writes, in the beginning was the Word. He is explicitly stating that the personified, powerful, active Word of God in the Old Testament has become flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants us to know. That's what he wants his readers to know. And as the Word made flesh... He is going to, as we go through the, gospel, or go through the Gospel of John, he is going to couple it with the gospel, where the word is the gospel, the gospel is the word, and the gospel and all that it is is found in the word capital W, Jesus Christ. Which leads us back to the question we started with. If the Word is Jesus and Jesus is a person, then he must have a beginning. And John says, "Yes, as a matter of fact, he does." But it's not the beginning that we think of. You go and you read the other gospels, and in the other gospels, each gospel of Jesus has a beginning. You go to Matthew's gospel, and the beginning of Jesus is with Abraham. You go when you read Mark's gospel, and the beginning of Jesus is found in the prophet Isaiah. You go to Luke's gospel, and the beginning of Jesus is found through the ministry. Of John the Baptist but John says no there's a different beginning for Jesus in the beginning and so immediately we go back to Genesis 1 right in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth but you know what John goes back even more because Genesis 1 takes us to the beginning of creation John 1 takes us back to whenever the beginning of eternity was and says when you go all the way back, when you go all the way back, back to in the beginning, before in the beginning of Genesis 1, Jesus was. That there was never, ever, ever a time where Jesus was not. In fact, you cannot go back further than God. You look at all the other faith systems. You look at the competing faith systems that John is writing to in the midst of the Roman gods and the stories of the Roman gods had stories of how they came, to begin, how they came into being. If you remember back when you went to school, or, or we, we read those myths. We read the Roman mythology or the Greek mythology or the Norse mythology that told you how God began and how God came in the beginning and how this minor God became God and, and which God had this God and so on and so on. There was always a beginning. John says in the beginning there was the Word. He didn't come forth from anybody. He wasn't born. He wasn't created. There is no time in all of eternity when the Word was not. You can't find it. Then John continues. He says, not only is Jesus Christ eternally existent, but Jesus Christ eternally exists in relationship with God. Because as John writes, in the beginning was the Word, he's kind of created a small problem, and the small problem is this. If the Word was in the beginning with God, then one of two things has to be true. Either the Word is God, or, or the Word was just somehow there, like a, a, you know just over here. So after he says, in the beginning was the Word, he says the Word was with God because both of those statements are true. Because John directs our attention is a person who is with God, but at the same time, distinguishable from God. However, this person who exists, as God does, and was there with God, is also lives in relationship with God. And where it writes with God, it, the, the more literal translation would be, toward God, that that the Word was toward God. So think of it face-to-face. Right now, I am looking toward you. I can see your face, Uh, you, you can see mine. And as we understand that, it is an indication that the Word is living in perfect harmony and communion with God moving and acting with God in an ideal, perfect relationship with the Father. And so in this relationship between, between God and Christ, there exists no disagreement. Right? The, the Word in His eternal existence does the Father's will. And then, as John is going to show us, when the Word becomes flesh and takes on human body, the Word will continue to live in harmony with God's will. Continue to have His face toward the Father's. Jesus, at the end of His ministry, takes Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He looks at them and says, My soul is burdened. Pray with me as I go pray. And immediately the disciples go to sleep. They're tired. They're in a garden It's comfortable. Jesus goes out and prays, and He prays, God, if this be your will, take this cup away from me, but what? But not my will be done, but your will be done. That perfect relationship of Jesus living with God in perfect harmony with God the Father and doing his will did not stop in eternity, will not stop in eternity future, and did not stop when Jesus in human flesh walked on this earth and you know what you may not understand that or think about it this morning but that's a really good thing for us that is a i mean that is really good news for us because jesus goes to the cross which was the will of the father to make atonement for our sins so that we can be saved right and you think yeah that's good but wait it gets better But now, right, now we have Jesus who can present our case to God. Who can stand there, as Job said. If only what? You remember Job saying, if only I had an advocate. If only I had somebody who could stand before God and plead my case for me, that I am righteous, that I haven't done anything to bring this calamity on me. If only... There was somebody who could put their face towards God's face and say, No, Job is righteous. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Job writes, That's what I need because Job is saying, I can't do it. I can't stand face to face with God and plead my case. I can't stand in the presence of the righteous God. If only I had an advocate whose face was towards God's face that could plead for me and my righteousness, I might live. John says we have him. John says, we have him in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He was face to face toward God, and now that he has come on earth and fulfilled God's will and died on the cross so that we may be saved, he is now our advocate face to face with God the Father, pleading our case of righteousness, not based on who we are, but what Christ did for us. So now when Satan... Comes and appears maybe like Job 1 and starts to criticize that's not he's your child Jesus the advocate stands up and says oh yeah <laughs> that one's mine that one's mine he belongs to me because I went to the cross and died for him I went to the cross and died for her and through faith in what I accomplished, they are my child and they belong to me. And God, I am now, I am their advocate, <laughs> going to plead their case so that you can see in them my righteousness that I have covered them in. I don't know about you. That's a lot of theology and a little preposition. But that's a whole lot of good news and a whole lot of hope in one little preposition. But then John continues. He's got their attention. But now he's going to solve that problem once and for all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what John is leading up to. Man, for... For a sentence that has 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, just 15 words. That's a powerful sentence. And the Word was God. He was God. Not only is He eternal, not only is He with God, His face to faith, but He is God, which means that everything that can be said or attributed to God can equally be applied to the Word. And this is so, this, this is so critical. This, this is so very, very important. Because it tells us that Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, is God full stop. And that is a truth that would have rocked his Jewish hearers. Right? The the Jews were very proudly, if not zealously, and I don't mean that in in the way that the word zealot is used now, but zealously monotheistic. There was one God. Every single day, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord our God is one. What distinguished Israel from all the Philistines, uh, Philistines, the Canaanites, the Ammonites, all the ites of the Old Testament was the fact that the, the Israelites said there is one God. Everybody else said, no, there's a lot of gods. The Romans, there's a lot of God. Jesus is fine. Just slap him up there with all the other gods. And the Jews said, no, there is only one God. And here John writes, Jesus was God. There's another person in the Godhead. And there's another person who is God. So, so now, do, do, we, do we have three gods? And John will flesh this out later, but the, the answer is no. Because what we see here is the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the tri- Trinity, very succinctly stated, says there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons Father, Son, and And Holy Spirit, each one God, each one distinct. And the distinctions are not among their attributes or their perfections, but in the way they interact with each other and the role that they play in accomplishing their unified will. Which leads us to the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. And, you know, one of the things I know a lot of times when people, I don't, I don't like to give illustrations of the Trinity because there's something wrong with every illustration. This is one of those truths that is taught scripturally from the very beginning. Let us create God in our image. The Spirit of God rested on so and so. Jesus is God. It, it, it is there. And it is one of the truths that we have to accept by fact and by faith and not try to figure out a neat analogy or a system that we can wedge it in to make it sound easier to understand. And at the same time, it is a truth that we must guard, and we must guard the truth that Jesus Christ is God. And one of the ways we guard that is we've we got to notice the word order. Because it says that the Word was God, not God was the Word. Because if it was the latter, that would imply that God and the Word are the same, and and they are not. Because that construction would eliminate any differentiation in the Trinity. John is arguing the Father is God. He is arguing that, that the Son is God, and later he's going to say the Spirit is God. At the same time, there is only one God. This is not an I guess it's kind of an illustration, so maybe I shouldn't. But think of the Trinity, you always got to think multiplication, not addition. Because one plus one plus one is three. One times one times one is one. If that helps, but then you can add another one. I see, I told you, every illustration falls down. Every single one. But there is one God. Secondly, we've got to understand and guard that Jesus is not a God. That, 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 that's super duper important. This is Jehovah's Witnessing, Jehovah's Witness teaching. When you read their translation, the New World translation, and a good sign that you're in a cult is you have your own translation. And they write the word was a God. Which then communicates the truth that they communicate as well, that maybe one day you can become a God. Man, we talked about this morning about how do you know if you're being led astray? How do you know if you're being deceived? And and the answer is the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into all truth. But another way is to notice just the subtle distinction, the subtle change. There's not a huge change in the actual words, little word, the God and a God, right? There's not a big distinction, but theologically speaking, it's huge because now it's playing into my desire to have my own authority. You can raise your hands with this question if you want to. If you had the choice between being a king or a queen or a peasant, how many of you would choose royalty? I know y'all are so godly. I love that about y'all. The pastor, he ain't godly. He wants to be king. Yeah. People cook my food, people clean my house, people just bring me money. Hey, I'm all for it. Because if we have the ability to be in charge or under somebody's authority, we'll take the in charge. And if God is just a word, then it gets, or the word is a God, then that says to us, hey, there remains an outside hope that if you then follow all the rules, all the legalistic, you do everything right, that you might become a God and have your own authority. John says, uh, nope. The word is God, which means you better submit to his authority. But then finally, we have to guard this because our salvation depends upon it. The only way for us to be redeemed back to God is for God to do something. All right? That's the only way. We can't bring ourselves to God. There has to be a mediator. And this time I'm talking about a mediator of the covenant, not an advocate like Job, but a mediator of the covenant. And when you go back to the history of Israel, they had to have a mediator between them and God, and it was the priesthood, right? The priest mediated we got to have someone who's going to mediate for us. But you know what was interesting about the Old Testament? Leviticus 16, chapter 6. No, Leviticus 16, verse 6, sorry. This is the Lord speaking to Moses, who is going to then tell Aaron everything. And it's in the context of talking about the Day of Atonement. Aaron is the priest, the high priest. Verse 6 says this. Listen to the words carefully. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. What does Leviticus 6 or Leviticus 16 verse 6 teach us about Aaron? That Aaron was sinful too. Even though he was the high priest, he was covered in sin. And on the day of atonement, he couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people covered in his sins or else he's not getting past the curtain. And if Aaron, the high priest... The very first one that God called and said, You're going to be the priest for my people is not good enough. If Moses, who led his people for 40 years out of Egypt, who gave them the law, if Moses is not good enough to mediate the covenant, what what hope do we have? And then in Jeremiah 31, where we get the new covenant, there is coming a day that there's going to be a new covenant. Okay, great. Who's the mediator? Well, the mediator is Jesus Christ. The mediator is going to be Jesus Christ. Because when you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the Day of Atonement, what you see is it was an annual sacrifice. And if it's an annual sacrifice, what does that tell you about sin? Sin is never sufficiently and finally dealt with. Sin always remains. So the next year, Aaron's got to go do it again and make atonement for the people. And then the next year, Aaron's got to do it again. And the next year, Aaron's got to do it again. And it replays over and over and over until Aaron dies. And the next high priest steps up and it goes over and over and over and over again. The only way for that cycle to end, for us to be saved, is for there to be a mediator who doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself first. Someone who is perfectly sinless. Who can fulfill that role? No one other than God. So what is the something that God does? God takes on flesh and comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, fully human, fully divine. Why? Because he can live the perfect, sinless life. He can go make atonement for us without having to make atonement for himself. So God steps in to do what we cannot do. And John writes it, the Word was God. God. He has the authority to forgive you of your sins unlike anyone else, any other priesthood in the Old Testament had the ability to do. Only God can redeem us eternally because only God is perfect and sinless. And God's plan, one person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ the Son took on flesh and came to earth living face to face, face toward God the Father to do the will of the Father to make atonement for us. So when John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he is immediately drawing our attention to Jesus. That Jesus is the final authoritative active Word of God. That Jesus is is, is never going to change, just like God is never going to change. Just like what Jesus accomplishes on the cross will never, ever change. Jesus alone is God, and no one will ever be able to take His place or stand beside Him. Jesus has got to then be the center of the way that we approach God. We can't come to God without going through Jesus. You you cannot. And John starts right there. Saying, look, this Jesus that I'm getting ready to tell you about. <laughs> he was in the beginning. And he was with God. And he is God. So make Him, then, your rightful object of worship. The Lord which He is that we must obey. The Savior whom whom we praise, our life to whom we pledge our allegiance to. Because He has done all of this for you so that you may believe. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.